Good morning. Just checking I'm on. Yep. <coughs> well, welcome to Abbey to look at Pentecost Sunday together. And as Mark read from Acts chapter 2, we're actually starting halfway through chapter 1 where Chris left off last week and carrying through to the end of, of verse 13 that Mark read so brilliantly. Um, Twelve, sorry, <laughs> 12 years ago, almost to the day, I was waiting kind of in an upper room, uh, anxiously there with close family, and I was there praying, seeking God's favor, um, not for any particular spiritual reason, but because my first son, Eric, was about to be born. He was, he was going to turn 12 on the 14th of June. And as, as I was there waiting and praying and sort of hoping as a nervous father, there came the point where the, the doctor or the nurse came out and said, well, you can come in now, Mr. Dancy, and be there at the birth, you know, being a good modern father. Didn't really want to go in, but it's the kind of thing you do. So in I went dutifully, and as I was there, sort of just watching Natasha and thinking, oh, this doesn't look good, it's painful. Um, at that moment, all of a sudden, something went wrong. Machines started beeping, and they looked at me and said, you can't be in here, get out. And so they pushed me out into the waiting room without really much explanation. So I was there praying even more fervently with my family, who were saying, what on earth is going on? My parents are there and my in-laws. And what had happened is Eric had uh, made a slight appearance and then gone back in, and his heart rate had dropped, and he'd somehow got stuck, and so they had an emergency C-section. So I say all this to say that anticipating the birth of my son was a very special moment. And of course, it all went a little bit haywire, but thankfully, he came out fine, and so did Natasha. But people have likened Pentecost as the day of the birth of the church. And I'm kind of stealing the title from next week, so I hope you forgive me, whoever's speaking next week. This is the, we're talking today about the birth of the church. And as Chris was reminding us last week, there's several events that we really need to keep in mind together and not miss out or e emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. And so we talk about the importance of understanding the incarnation when God became man in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus lived his life fully human on this earth and then was put to death on the cross, dying for our sins, but rose again, showing his blameless life. And then Chris was emphasizing how often we look, we sort of overlook the ascension, the importance of Christ going back to heaven to be with the Father, to sit at the right hand in a position of authority. And this is another event that is part of this chain that we overlook to our peril. This is when Christ, the risen, ascended Christ, sends his spirit to earth to birth his church. And that's the emphasis you, you get coming out time and time again in the Acts of the Apostles. This is about the Holy Spirit's Acts of the Apostles. Luke is the gospel writer who most emphasizes the Holy Spirit more than all the other gospel writers. And then in Acts, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting, guiding the apostles, enabling them to preach, filling people at least 54 times. So a couple of times every chapter, he's bringing in the work of the Holy Spirit. So for good reason, some people prefer to call it, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or I think as Chris's title last week was the Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus, which was too long, he decided. And I can agree with that. But this is what, the, if Luke's gospel is about Jesus coming, see if this works, as the bearer of the Spirit, he arrives in chapter 4 saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news 
and to set the captive free. And that's what the gospel is about, the gospel of Luke. Jesus going through the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing the Spirit, setting people free, announcing the gospel. What Acts is about Jesus sending the Spirit and empowering his church to carry on the mission of Jesus. So this is what we're looking at this morning. So we're going to pick it up from where Chris left off last week, and that's in chapter 1, which we haven't had read to us, and we're not going to read all of it, but beginning at verse 12. And this is what we read. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, and he lists the rest of the 11 apostles at this point. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this is now the scene being set for waiting for Pentecost, preparing for Pentecost. And it's quite a significant scene, because if we go back a little bit, we'll see that Jesus' last command to the disciples was a very important one. In Matthew 28, we read that he gives them a commission to go out into all the world. But in the other Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, and in Acts, the, the summary we had last week, Jesus gives them one important command that's to happen before that. And he says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' last command before ascending, is to wait. Don't go yet. Wait for the promise of the Father. And when you think about it, the disciples probably thought they were already ready to go. They had spent three years with Jesus, getting to know him, understanding things, not very well, but they'd had a lot of on-the-spot discipleship training. Then everything had crumbled when Jesus had been crucified, but then they'd seen him rise again. And then they'd had 40 days of intense instruction from Jesus, opening their eyes to the Scriptures, And they must have felt ready. We understand this. We get this. We know what is happening. We're ready to go. But Jesus says, no, wait. There's one important thing you still need, and that is the promise of the Father. That's what I'll be sending, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He promises in Acts 1, 4 and 5. And if we read through John's Gospel, particularly the last few chapters, 14 to 16, Jesus spends a lot of time unpacking the role of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to go into that, but we see the Holy Spirit there as promised by Jesus. He would send him when he'd gone back to the Father as another counselor, as an advocate, as the spirit of truth, as the one who would lead them into truth, who would bring back Jesus' words to them, who would convict the world of sin, and who would testify to Jesus. So it was so important for them to wait for this Holy Spirit to come upon them because they were not yet ready even though they had all the knowledge, if you like, and they, were, they had, had had Jesus teaching them. And so as they're waiting, they're, as they return to Jerusalem, they're obeying Jesus' last command to stay in Jerusalem and don't go anywhere. And then we read, this is what they were doing while they were waiting. They all joined together constantly in prayer. And that's a bit I'd like to focus on just for a minute. This is not really just showing up in body, as perhaps some of us have done this morning, but our minds and hearts are elsewhere. This is joined together, fervently seeking God for one purpose. That's how Luke uses this expression elsewhere in the, in, in the book of Acts. He talks about people joined together to stone Stephen. They were so mad at him. They were focused on one purpose. We're going to get him. 
The same thing against Paul later on when he's preaching and the crowds when they're coming to beat someone up in Acts. It's, it's a word he uses to say this is not just sitting together as a body. This is focused together on one purpose. That's what they were about while they were waiting. And as they were waiting, they weren't just focused together on one purpose, but they were continually in prayer, it says there. And, and again, this is a, Luke is using a word that you can translate as obstinately persistent. So we know, doing the maths, that they were actually wait, they had to wait for 10 days before Pentecost, before the Spirit descended. So they were praying constantly, obstinately, for 10 days, something I've never achieved yet. This sense of keeping on in prayer, not giving up until that promise of the Father came. That's what they were doing as they were waiting. So it wasn't just a kind of sitting around saying, well, I hope God shows up with this promise soon. No, this was focused together, seeking God, determined, constant in prayer, which I think is a challenge for us as a church. And we, we read again, and Paul picks up on this idea. He talks about in Romans 12, 12, persisting, using the same word, in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, again, that same phrase, persist in prayer. So this was an important point for them to be seeking God. And then not only that, I'm kind of going to summarize verses 15 to 26 as they were a group that as they waited on God, focused in prayer, they were being guided by the scriptures as well. And what had happened, as, as you read through, which we don't have time to do, Judas obviously had betrayed Christ, killed himself, tells us in Matthew's gospel he hung himself, and then uh, Luke, who's a doctor, likes to add the gruesome details. It says he fell down and his guts spilled out, and it's all very pleasant. But the concern of Peter is not exactly how Judas has died. It's the fact that there's somebody missing now from our group. We have a gap as the 12 apostles, which we must fill to be ready for this coming of the Father. And so as he's reading through the scriptures, he draws on two messianic psalms. And what do I mean by that? The, the early church believed these psalms pointed to Christ, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, because they talk about an innocent sufferer. And for them, there was only one innocent sufferer, and that was Christ. So in, as they read that psalm, they saw Christ's suffering portrayed there, but they also saw what happened to his enemies. And of course, Judas fitted into that category. So Peter takes a couple of verses from those psalms and puts them together and says, this was prophesied long ago by the Holy Spirit. It had to be fulfilled. And so he opens up these psalms to them. And so without going through the whole passage, so we'll point the other way, the idea for them was that they needed someone to take over the ministry of Judas. So he was one of their number, verse 17, and shared in this ministry. Then they decided with the apostles, we want a successor to become a witness to Christ's resurrection, to take over this ap apostolic ministry. And so in the end, they present two people who fulfilled the criteria they believed was important. Someone who'd been with them, but yet not called an apostle from the very beginning, right from John's baptism, Peter says up until now. Someone who would be able, as an authentic, if you like, as a qualified witness to Christ's resurrection. And that was the apostolic ministry that the twelve felt they were uniquely called to, to be these authentic witnesses who could say, I've been there, I've seen it, right from the first day up until now. And so they felt, we need someone to take Judas's place. And they cast lots, um, perhaps some People argue because it's before the Spirit comes, so that was their way of just following the biblical pattern of allowing God to choose between people. And it ends up on this fellow called Matthias, who was chosen by Lot. 
and he is now numbered with the 11 apostles. He takes Judas's place in this special ministry of testifying to who Jesus is. And so we now have this full group. It says there are 120 of them, the 12 newly formed apostles, if you like, or reformed, and a bigger group of Jesus' family and obviously other believers, perhaps children even, waiting together, praying, united, seeking God, seeking to apply his word to their situation. And that brings us to the passage we've read. That brings us to this amazing event, Pentecost, the birth of the church. And it begins in Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now for us, when you, when you hear the word Pentecost, it probably doesn't give you much of a biblical picture of what's going on. It's either just the day in the church calendar, today, or it's associated with the denomination, the Pentecostals, who put a great emphasis on this and are much more, a bit more lively than us in worship, say, and also, you know, want more manifestation, if you like, of spiritual gifts and that kind of thing. So that would be how you'd work out what the word Pentecost is, either people who are going crazy in worship or just a day on the church calendar. But that's not really what this day was about. Pentecost was just shorthand for the 50th day. That's all it meant. Um, so maybe we could call Pentecostals 50th dayers, but I don't know if they would like that particularly. But that's what this day means. It's just a Greek word for 50th day. And so what it was is this was actually another Jewish festival that followed after Passover. So you can read about it in Leviticus 23, where it says, from the day after the Sabbath, this is the one that falls after Passover, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days, in case you can't do the maths, up to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So they were bringing the first fruits that they had harvested of the grain harvest to God on this day. And it became something of a special day, as we'll see. Uh, Moses also tells them, on that same day you shall make proclamation, you shall hold a, hold a holy convocation or just a holy meeting set apart, and you shall do no regular work. And in fact, they weren't supposed to eat anything until they brought the offering because they were giving this offering back to God in thanksgiving for everything he'd given them. So what we see about Pentecost is that, first of all, it's a day of gathering, of holy gathering to the Lord and being set apart to God. We see also it's a day of proclamation. And we'll see in a minute as we read through, there's a group gathered together, set apart for God, who when the Holy Spirit comes will begin to proclaim his greatness. But as the biblical tradition grew, Pentecost took on a couple of other significances. And one was that the Jews had worked out that this would be the day that Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai. So this was also a day they remembered the giving of the law, the day Moses came down from the mountain. And then lastly, it became associated with as a day of renewing the covenant, of saying, yes, God, we as your people enter into covenant with you again and agree to follow you. So this was the day, if you like, this was the day set apart by God to say that's the day my spirit comes and is poured out. And it's significant because as you read through the Old Testament, you realize the prophecies are there to say that when the whole problem with the people of Israel was they'd been given the law, but they just couldn't live up to it. They'd been given this role as God's people to show the world what it meant to live in covenant with God, and they kept messing it up hence being sent off to exile many different times and being dominated by other nations. 
And it just wasn't working. And so in the prophets in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, we're told that there will come a day when God will send his spirit to dwell in their hearts, to write the law on their hearts, and to make a new covenant. So this is what Pentecost meant for the people of, Is- for the people of Israel, for the people gathered in that upstairs room. This was a day of covenant renewal. This was a day of celebrating the giving of the law. And it is all fulfilled and then matched and superabundantly beaten by the coming of the Holy Spirit because he's finally the one who's going to enable God's people to live what they've been trying to do for thousands of years without success. This is a game changer. The Holy Spirit now enables people to live out God's law, God's covenant. And it's no longer just the select few. Moses, at one point, when he was appointing 70 elders to help him rule Israel, had said, you know, ask God to pour out the Spirit on them. And it happened. A couple of them had refused to come because they were in a strop. But the Spirit of God fell on them anyway in the camp. And Joshua was saying, Moses, you know, that's not on. They shouldn't be allowed to have the Holy Spirit because they didn't show up for our meeting. But, God, but Moses said to, Joseph, to Joshua, you know what? I wish everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. I wish the Holy Spirit would come out on all of them. And this is what is happening here, as Peter will make clear and we'll look at next week, is that this is fulfillment of Joel's prophecy when he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This is no longer just for the select few that God chooses to do his mighty works through in the Old Testament. It's not that the Holy Spirit is absent from the Old Testament. He's there throughout, but it's never poured out on all of God's people. So we're celebrating at Pentecost this game-changing moment when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in all God's people. This is God's presence coming down. And as one commentator puts it, Moses can only declare the law, telling the people what they should do, but Jesus can declare it and then by his Spirit enable his people to obey. That's what Pentecost is about, at least in part. That ability to obey God which up till now the people of God had failed so miserably about. But it's also more than that. It's about God's presence with us, as I've said. As we read on, we read that suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This significant event is completely in line with how God shows up in power in the Old Testament time and time again. Whenever you see this wind and fire coming together, we know it's God's presence. You see that in the Mount Sinai when God gave the law that first time. We see that in Ezekiel where God appears to him out of a stormy wind, it says. And so God's presence comes down by his spirit and fills this house. I imagine it shook the foundations. It made a loud noise like a rushing wind, it says. So much so that people who are around, who are in Jerusalem for this feast from all over, as we read in verse 5, they came running to see what was going on. And as God's presence overwhelmed the people there by his spirit, they kind of spill out onto the streets and begin praising God with these other tongues. And the people come even more. So there's a big crowd formed at the end when Peter finally stands up and preaches to them because they're saying, what on earth is going on? We've never seen anything like this. God 
must be showing up, although some were mocking at the end. But this is God's presence coming down. This is Pentecost. What we celebrate is the Holy Spirit now dwells in each of us because we trust in him. We trust in Christ, and so the Spirit dwells in us. This is what it's about. The crowd doesn't understand it. It tells us that several times in the verses Mark read. They're perplexed, amazed, astonished. What on earth is going on? But I think it's important that we realize that these tongues at this point, not to say anything about what Paul teaches about the gift of tongues later on in places like 1 Corinthians, these tongues at this point were simply the ability to speak languages they hadn't learned and declare the praises of God. This coming down of the Spirit, first and foremost, led to an experience of worshipping the living God. It wasn't about a nice feeling, or first and foremost, even about power to witness. It was about worship. When God came down upon them, the reality of God's presence. But it is also about witness. And it reminds us of what we read last week in verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as I said, this event had, was so loud and noisy that it drew people in. And right here, at the birth of the church, we also see the birth of God's mission to reach all the nations. We read in verse 5, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking his own language. And then Luke gives us a list of several nations, not by any means complete probably, but just a sampling because there were many more nations probably represented there. But what we see is that each nation represented heard God speaking or heard the disciples speaking God's praises in their own language. God communicates in the heart language of everyone there present. And if you like, this is a picture of wrapped up Babel, the Tower of Babel, where people were scattered and could no longer communicate with one another, and the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, right before that, which has the divisions of all the peoples of the earth. God again coming down as he did at Babel, but this time not to scatter, but to communicate and to speak to people and to begin his mission again of redemption through the church. And so Peter can stand up at that point when they say, what on earth is going on, and explain. We're not drunk, as some of them were saying, but this is the Holy Spirit. This is what God has promised. And we'll look at that in more detail next week. as Peter's sermon. But this is the birth of the church reaching out to the whole world. At that particular day, people from every nation under heaven, Luke says, had gathered in Jerusalem. And that particular day, the Spirit pours, is poured out and begins to speak in languages that everyone can hear, can understand their own language. And so it's, it's an incredible moment. It's not just this one-off event that we celebrate in the church's calendar. This is the beginning of the church and the beginning of God's mission. The church is finally ready, after its period of waiting, to go out and do its mission. And as I was preparing for this, I, I get a devotional, one of these things you can sign up to, and it appears in my inbox every morning, and sometimes I read it and sometimes I don't, but I did this particular time because it was about Pentecost. And the writer of this particular devotional says, Pentecost today reminds us of the significance and importance of church as a gathered community. 
It was that group gathered together in the upper room, waiting. And of its calling to be a place of worship. That was the first response from these people as they were filled with the Spirit. And encounter with God. That was what happened as the people came in to see what was going on. There was an encounter with God. And it also renews our responsibility to freely offer ourselves to God's work of mission. People from all over the known world were there hearing God's praise in their own tongue, wherever life finds us. And I felt that's really applicable to us today, whether we would say we're less charismatic or more charismatic or Pentecostal or not. That's irrelevant. This is a moment where we're reminded of the importance of us as church to be this place of worship, to be this place of encounter with God, to be willing to engage in God's mission because the Spirit of God is empowering us. That is what we're looking at with Pentecost. So it leaves us with a question, where are we at today? Pentecost, as I said, was that annual renewal of the covenant. If we were to look at it as an annual renewal, where would we find ourselves? You know, the President of the United States gives his annual State of the Nation address to the people, telling them how everything's going. If this was today, was the Abbey Church State of the Church address, where would we be? If this is the state of your heart moment, where would it be? I found it very difficult preparing this because there were so many areas I could look into my own heart and say I'm falling short. If I test my life by worship, is that Spirit of God just flowing into me and, and just you know, raising my arms in worship because I can't do anything else as those apostles were doing on that day, that group of 120? Is the worship in my life an indication of the temperature of my heart? If so, I'm in a bit of trouble. How about my witness? Has the Spirit really taken hold of me and empowered me? Does He send me out from this room into the streets, kicked out by the power of the Spirit, to testify to God's wonders to those around me? Or is that a bit of a far-removed reality from my life? Am I much too quiet and shy and not willing to have somebody say, oh, he's drunk, as they did to to the disciples that day? What is the state of my heart? What is the state of your heart? What is the state of Abbey Church on this day of covenant renewal, this day of the Spirit being poured out to empower us for witness and to bring God's presence to us. The writer of that devotional goes on to say this, even if we feel jaded and down, we can call out to God for a fresh outpouring of his Holy Spirit, which is both a renewal of intimate communication with God and an empowering for obedient service of God in his world. I certainly need that, that fresh outpouring that renewal of intimate communication with God, that empowering for obedient service of God in his world. That's what we're thinking about on Pentecost Sunday. And of course, we don't have to limit it to a day in the calendar. This is every day. But today is a good day to remind ourselves again that as those disciples, filled with knowledge, filled with the scriptures, had to wait before they were able to go out. They had to wait for the promise of the Father. And they had to seek God earnestly, persistently in prayer, unitedly, before that happened. And I think that's a challenge for us, that in all the plans we're making, that we're waiting on God, and we're seeking Him for Him to move and for His Spirit 
be the one empowering us, not our own clever ideas. So we need to wait for that for the Holy Spirit to know God's presence, to be empowered for His purposes. I certainly would pray for a fresh outpouring in my life, and I think probably we could use it in the life of Abbey Church. But it does require something of us. It does require that willingness to wait on God in, in prayer. So let's pray as we continue with this service together. Father, we realize that we're completely dependent on your Holy Spirit and we're so thankful you've poured out your Spirit into our hearts. And yet many times we, we quench the Spirit through our disobedience or grieve the Spirit through our lack of love and many other things. And Lord, as Israel today renews its covenant, Lord, we want to renew our hearts before you and ask for your Spirit to once again fill us, to empower us, to bring your presence to us and to enable us to be your witnesses in this world to the ends of the earth, Lord. And you've, just like at Pentecost, you've drawn the nations to us. Lord, we want to reach out and we pray you will renew us and empower us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.